Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Stephen Bright, Dr. James Kwok about their new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. Stephen Bright, James Kwok, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I listened to many uh, New Books Network podcasts, so it's uh, fun to be on it. Oh, wonderful. Well, we're we're very happy to have both of you on. Uh, so I wonder if we could start just with you two, um, just telling us a little bit about yourselves. Well, sure. I'll start. Steve Bright, I uh, practiced law for over 40 years, most of it with the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta, most of it representing people facing the death penalty. Uh, I represented people at trials. Uh, in a number of states, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. I argued a number of cases uh, representing people in the appellate and post-conviction review process. Uh, some of those cases made their way to the Supreme Court. Uh, at some point in 1993, I started teaching at Yale Law School, and I still teach there, as well as at Georgetown Law Center in Washington, D.C. So this is James. I, uh, I've done a lot of things. I got a Ph.D. in history a long time ago. I spent some time in the business world. In 2008, I started going to Yale Law School. I was in Steve's capital punishment class. I also worked in the capital punishment clinic that Steve oversaw at the time. After law school, I became a law professor at the University of Connecticut. I taught there for about uh, 10 years. And uh, along the way, I've written a number of books. I've also stayed in touch with Steve. I became a board member of the Southern Center for Human Rights uh, a decade ago. I was the chair for a little while. And I'm still on the board of the Southern Center. So that's me. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. Um, so how did you both come to this project? Well, I think the start of the project was really bearing witness to a lot of what we saw at the Southern Center for Human Rights over the years. Uh, I have ripped off some articles, the first one in 1993, uh, called Counsel for the Poor, the Death Penalty, Not for the Worst Crime, but for the Worst Lawyer. Uh, which sort of reflected on the poor quality of representation which people accused of crimes were getting in death penalty cases, but all kind of other cases as well. Uh, later, uh, an article about elected judges and the fact that judges are often more responsive uh, to the next election than to what the law and the Constitution demand, particularly in high-profile cases like death penalty cases. Uh, and so what we have done with the book is tried to uh, start with that base of knowledge and then expand out and uh, describe it uh, in terms of what we are seeing, uh, in terms of race discrimination, in terms of the poor quality of uh, representation that poor people accused of crimes uh, receive, uh, other issues, the way mentally ill people are treated in the system, uh, fines and fees. Uh, all of those things which we outline or, excuse me, which we discuss in the book. Yeah, as, you know, as Steve mentioned, he started, in a sense, Steve started working on this book in the early 1990s with those articles that he that he wrote at the time. Uh, I joined the process um, considerably later, um, you know, in in my time at law school, in my time, uh, in my summers, in my time working with the Southern Center for Human Rights, I've, you know, seen uh, secondhand, um, sometimes firsthand, Many of the the issues that Steve has talked about, we've also you know expanded the the scope of the book to talk about 
some issues that, you know, the Southern Center has been working on for a while, but that have come to the public consciousness more recently, such as the problem of fines and fees, criminalization of poverty, excessive, excessive sentencing, and so on. So I think together, you know, we've, we've put together a book that discusses many of the structural failings in the criminal legal system. And, you know, as the subtitle indicates, with a particular emphasis on the impacts of race and of poverty on creating unequal outcomes in the courts. Absolutely. And before we sort of get into the book, I'd like to ask both both of you, what was the process of co-writing this book like? Well, it was a process that uh, I've employed in writing briefs and uh, other things, which basically is uh, we just would pass the drafts back and forth, or at least it's my perspective on it, uh, would pass our drafts back and forth and uh, each point out uh, ways to improve it and better state it, to get other examples, to provide a better historical backdrop. I mean, whatever we felt was necessary to be sort of chapter by chapter, uh, but it was very much a team effort of basically uh, working and revising and hopefully improving, uh, also at times uh, trying to make it more concise uh, than, than, it, than our original drafts and my original drafts uh, were. Uh, so it was a very, very uh, good uh, collaborative effort in my view. Yeah, I'll say it was a lot of fun. I think that... Um... One of the, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the ideas, I think, we knew going in, right? I mean, we knew that prosecutors have too much discretion. We knew that the right to counsel is, is not enforced, is not meaningful for many poor people. Um, a lot of what we had to deal with was, you know, and the last thing I'll say is we had a tremendous number of examples. Um, you know, because of Steve's work, because of the work of the Southern Center, because of the, you know, media coverage, there's so many, any any case we talk about in the book, you could find a dozen more, a dozen more like that. Uh, you know, Steve mentioned making it more concise. We, I'll, I'll give you one inside baseball comment. We submitted a draft to the editor that she said was much too long, and we we got the word count down by almost a third. Uh, and I say, and it was largely taking out the fourth example, the third of the fourth example, <laughs> when two or three would suffice. So I think we did it when that uh, taking out very little of the kind of substantive content of the book. So the the main title of this book obviously is the fear of too much justice. So where does this phrase sort of originate from, and re- what role does it play in the larger sort of work that you all created here? Well, it comes from a Supreme Court case. The Supreme Court was presented with the most sophisticated study of sentencing uh, that's ever been conducted, uh, which was looking at the way in which the death penalty has been imposed in Georgia over a fairly substantial period of time. Uh, and what the study revealed was the influence of race. Uh, that prosecutors are more likely to seek the death penalty and obtain it in cases where the victim is white as opposed to black, uh, that the prosecutors are more likely to uh, uh, seek death against black defendants, and that when you have that combination of a white victim and a black defendant, which was the case in Warren McCluskey's case, the one that made its way to the Supreme Court, the, the, the likelihood of death is much greater uh, than with any other racial combination. And the Supreme Court uh, heard argument in the case, received the briefs. Uh, it was a very close decision, five to four. Uh, the majority opinion uh, by Justice Powell said, we can't deal with race disparities in the infliction of the death penalty, uh, because if we did, that would open us up to having to look at race disparities with regard to all other kinds of sentencing. Uh, this wasn't the first time Justice Powell had said this. He had previously, with regard to the death penalty, 
and, and issues of race discrimination said, well, there's race discrimination in every kind of sentencing. So why is the death penalty different? Of course, some people would say the death penalty is different than any other kind of sentencing. Uh, but Justice Brennan, in his dissenting opinion, said uh, this fear of having to look into other kinds of discrimination was a fear of too much justice. Uh, Powell also suggested maybe we wouldn't not only look at other kind of sentencing, but maybe other kind of factors that resulted in people getting the death penalty. Uh, we'd have to look into those. Of course, our answer to that is that's what the courts are there for. Uh, if race is an issue, if race is a factor, an improper factor, that one person's getting the death penalty and another person isn't, and the difference is race, uh, the courts ought to do something about that. Uh, but what we find is that if you look at a lot of other areas of the law, uh, the fear of too much justice uh, seems to uh, keep us from really doing what's necessary to provide a full measure of justice uh, to people. Uh, if we really provided people with public defenders who had the resources and caseloads and to provide zealous representation, some people think that's a fear of too much justice, that people will, people will be acquitted uh, who are now uh, being convicted. Uh, all the way through this, we see this sort of hesitancy uh, on the part of the courts uh, to do what's necessary uh, to provide uh, justice in many different contexts. And can you uh, both sort of explain the explain how uh, racial prejudice sort of persists in jury selection despite Supreme Court rulings on the matter, and what sort of effect this has upon those that are standing trial? Yeah, so I think you know one of the constant themes through the through the book, unfortunately is that racism and racial discrimination play a major role in the criminal legal system at many points. You mentioned jury discrimination, which is one of the most uh, salient. Um, you know, there's a long tradition, particularly in the South, of trying a black defendants in front of all white juries. This goes back, you know, a very long time. Um, in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was quite easy because uh, blacks were ex excluded. They were excluded upstream. They were not on the voter rolls. They were not in the in the um, lists of potential jurors. And if you look at the the history and the laws through most of the 20th century up until around the 1960s and 70s, the way jury pools were composed made it easy to exclude uh, most blacks. Um, you know, after the civil rights movement uh, and and some changes in, in statutes, now for the most part we use we often use uh, voter rolls and and drivers driving records to determine who's of the potential pool. Those are still somewhat slanted against poor people and people of color, but not tremendously. So the major weapon and now um, there are multiple tactics prosecutors can use. The major weapon is the peremptory strike. Right, so in in just about everywhere, uh, both the prosecutor and the defense attorney can eliminate a certain number of people from the jury pool for for any reason, for no reason, uh, without without uh, having to explain themselves. Well, except in a very small way to the judge. So, in the 1960s, the Supreme Court basically said it was okay to strike people uh, because of their race. Uh, this this became, uh, especially after the resumption of the death penalty, this became a more and more uh, obvious injustice because of the number of black defendants who were being convicted and particularly sentenced to death by all white juries. And so in 1986, the Supreme Court said, you may no longer strike a, a potential juror on the basis of race. And I think this is a, you know, this is a telling example of a couple of key themes of the book because 
Uh, the Supreme Court stated uh, this principle, which on its face should should solve the problem or go take go a long way towards solving the problem. But at the same time, it established a legal test that basically does not does not result in the desired outcome. So what I mean by that is the test is that if a prosecutor strikes, say a prosecutor strikes a black potential juror, and a defense attorney objects and says, Your Honor, I think that that strike was made on the basis of, of race, the prosecutor then has the opportunity to cite a race-neutral reason for the strike. And Supreme Court over the years has allowed a, a vast number of race-neutral reasons, such as whether or not the defendant had facial hair, had long hair, didn't make eye contact, looked sullen, um, and so on. And so what's happened now is that prosecutors uh, are trained with lists of reasons, of race neutral, facially race-neutral reasons for striking jurors. And when they want to strike a juror on the basis of race, they just state a race-neutral reason. The reason is almost always accepted by the judge. And so we have an example of a legal principle, which sounds good in the abstract, but that the Supreme Court has essentially uh, failed in upholding. And so you still see, um, again, particularly in the South, many juries that are, uh, even in in communities that have large numbers of people of color, you still see all-white juries. And I would just add this. I mean, when you think about it, this is not going to work to begin with because the prosecutor strikes all the blacks and then gives reasons, and the judge is supposed to divine uh, whether the reason is a race-neutral reason, if that's the true reason, or whether the real reason is race. Now, how would the judge possibly know? Uh, there's no way to know that. Uh, but then you add the psychological factor. Uh, the judge deals with this prosecutor all the time. Uh, the judge may have been a prosecutor at one time. Now he's a judge. His chief assistant is now the prosecutor. So he knows how the game is played. He used to strike all the blacks when he was picking juries. Uh, so psychologically, uh, it's just very unlikely uh, that the judge is going to find that the reason given is a, a pretext and the real reason is race. So it's not going to work to begin with. But then, as James points out, if you've got a list of reasons and the reasons have already been upheld by the courts in past cases, well, it just makes a farce. Uh, of the whole thing. And one thing that I think is so disturbing in terms of legitimacy and the credibility of the courts is that when you have these hearings and everybody knows what's going on, we're striking all the blacks to get an all-white jury. Uh, and yet there's this pretense that the people are struck for other reasons. Uh, and it really does undermine credibility and, and uh, legitimacy of, of uh, the, the case and, and the way in which cases are tried in the criminal courts. And so we've, we've talked a little bit about prosecutors here. So you devote an entire chapter sort of to the power the prosecutors have in this book. And it's a wonderful, very eye-opening chapter. Um, but I wonder if you could expand upon this. So what sort of power do prosecutors have? Where does this power come from? And how does this sort of negatively affect those that are caught in, in the criminal legal system? Yeah, so the prosecutor is the most important person in the court system, in the criminal uh, legal system. One might think it would be the judge. If you thought that, you would be wrong. It's definitely the prosecutor. And a lot of the prosecutor's power comes from his, I'll say his because most of them are men, his power over, over charging decisions. And I'll just explain this in two contexts. So one is the death penalty, right? So whether uh, many states have the death penalty on their books, yet the vast majority of prosecutors never seek the death penalty, or if they seek it, they only seek it as a tool in order to get a plea bargain, which is what I'm about to talk about. 
Um, but the the decision whether or not to seek the death penalty is uh, comes down virtually all the time to the district attorney, who in most states is elected and um, is about 70% white men uh, in this country. And so one thing about the death penalty today is that there are uh, there are just not that many death sentences anymore, which is obviously a very good thing. Uh, in the late 1990s, we walked to about 300 death sentences a year. Now we're around 30 or 40 a year. And, you know, I think it was Justice Breyer's, definitely one of the recent Supreme Court justices said, you know, if, if you looked at if you looked at the death the death cases that come to the Supreme Court and compared them to other murders, you could not tell which ones. Uh, you you could not tell on the basis of the facts of the case which ones resulted in death sentences, and that's because the the decision to seek the death sentence is is uh, is highly arbitrary and is, is up to the prosecutor. So one extreme of the system, essentially, who could be executed for the crimes, is up to the prosecutor. The other example I give is at the other end of the spectrum, when you're dealing with relatively uh, minor offenses that could be punished by several months of jail time, um, maybe a year of jail time. Uh, in these cases, um, many people. So the first issue is whether or not uh, you have to you have to post bail to get out of jail, because many people uh, who can't afford bail sit in jail awaiting trial. And then the prosecutor comes to them, and the prosecutor says, you know, based on the on what you did or what I'm, I'm alleging you did, I could charge you with X, Y, and Z, and you would get 12 years in prison, or I could charge you with just X, or I could charge you with W, I could charge you under a different statute, and you would get you would get three months, which you've already served, and two years of probation. And in that in that context, the you know the vast majority of defendants will will take the plea deal, will plead guilty in in exchange for the reduced. Uh, sentence. And so this is an example where the prosecutor is literally dictating the sentence because when they show up before the judge, the judge is just going to rubber stamp the deal. Um, so we have this idea that, you know, people do certain things and based on the badness of those things, they they get a sentence. So there's a sentencing range and that a judge who is somewhat neutral um, determines the sentence. But in fact, the prosecutor is the one who decides what you actually did. And based on that, and because of that, he gets to determine the sentence. And I just add to that, that's also where we see a lot of racial disparities in sentencing, because the prosecutor decides totally whether to charge, what to charge, when to charge, uh, whether to cut a deal with somebody who will then testify and say the defendant admitted to him that he committed the crime. Notoriously unreliable testimony, but it's used all the time uh, in cases uh, and as James points out, the severity of the sentence, the prosecutor decides whether to seek the death penalty, whether not to, whether to seek an enhanced punishment, uh, recidivist papers, uh, life in prison, mandatory 20 years, mandatory 30 years. And, and what we see is that very often those more severe punishments uh, are pursued in the cases of people of color uh, than in the cases of white people. And so... The opposite of that, um, you all talk right in this book uh, quite a bit about sort of the low standard of representation that exists uh, for those that are standing trial. Um, and can you speak and sort of can you expand a little bit more on this sort of inadequate representation that exists within criminal cases, and again, how that sort of affects people that are standing trial? Sure, I I think that one of the 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 most fundamental things, if you're going to have a fair trial, uh, is that the person accused of a crime has to be adequately represented. It's an adversary system. 
And if it's an adversary system that's going to work, the sides have to be relatively equally balanced in terms of resources and all that. Uh, we don't have that. Uh, we have an all-powerful prosecutor uh, who, as we just talked about, decides everything, what to charge, whether to seek the death penalty, all sorts of things like that. And unfortunately, in many places, not everywhere, but in many places, uh, poor people accused of crimes uh, receive totally inadequate legal representation. Uh, at the low level, where people, like the cases James talked about before, where the person's told, you know, we'll let you plead, do what you're, uh, the time you serve, uh, minor crimes, people will be arrested. Of course, that's the vast majority of cases coming in the system. People charged with misdemeanors, all kinds, drug charges, lot shoplifting, things like that, uh, locked up, come before a court. Uh, you'll see this whole room full of people and a lawyer will spend, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes with each person. Uh, and then everybody pleads guilty. And those people haven't had any legal representation uh, to speak of. The lawyers never really conducted a meaningful uh, interview. There's no legal research has gone on. No uh, work has been done on determining the strength of the prosecution's case. Uh, it's basically meet them and plead them. Uh, and the defendant has an interest in that, or the person accused has an interest in that because they get out, as James talked about. Uh, the problem is they're going to be put on probation with a whole bunch of conditions uh, that they probably can't meet, which means they're going to be back in court. They're going to be locked up. Uh, many of them will be uh, will have fines and fees uh, that are imposed, uh, and they can't pay those fines and fees because they don't have any income. Uh, and they're, they're told, well, you can pay on the installment plan. You can pay so much a month. Uh, but if you do that, then you'll be put on private probation, and you have an additional fee of 40 bucks a month that you have to pay the private probation officer. So whatever that fine is and those fees are, they're just going to get more and more and more as time goes by. And very often that person is going to be back before the court, and they're going to be put in jail because they didn't pay their fines or they didn't meet some other condition of probation. Uh, there are certainly places, as we talk about in the book, where people accused of crimes receive very good representation. There's some states where that happens. It certainly happens in the District of Columbia, the public defender there. Uh, but unfortunately, in many places, and I'm, I'm sorry to say most, uh, the public defenders are just so under-resourced. Uh, they have so many cases, and they don't have the investigators, the paralegals, the other people that are needed uh, to give people uh, meaningful representation and to make the trial uh, really uh, a meaningful adversarial uh, testing process. And the most you know, critical evidence we have of that uh, is that the courts very often don't even get straight the most fundamental question they're asked, which is who's guilty and who's innocent. We keep finding all these innocent people, many of whom have been in prison for 20 or 30 years, uh, and, of course, that's a real indictment of the system because, at the very least, uh, the system should be ensuring that only guilty people uh, go to prison or, or go to jail uh, or get the death penalty. And, and, unfortunately, that doesn't happen very often, and the same kind of problems that lead to that uh, often lead to a lot of other problems uh, with the way people are treated in the system. I just want to add that the... Uh... You know, the the right to counsel, again, the Supreme Court has said this is a fundamental right. So there's a famous famous case, Gideon v. Wainwright from 1963, and a line of cases in the 60s and early 70s, which said that if you're facing as a, any loss, potential loss of liberty, you have the right to a lawyer. Uh, but 
this has not been enforced. There are, there are two problems. One is this is an unfunded mandate, right? So states and counties and cities were given the responsibility to provide lawyers. And then the Supreme Court, by the 1980s, the Supreme Court was already considerably more conservative, had to decide the question of what did it mean to have an effective lawyer? What was sufficient uh, representation? And the Supreme Court established a test that was very difficult for uh, defendants to meet if they're trying to make a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel. Essentially, they said, you have to prove that you, your lawyer performed badly, and lawyers are presumed to have performed uh, capably. And then you have to prove that if you had had a better lawyer, um, the outcome of the case would have been different, which is an extreme, it's extremely hard to prove a, a hypothetical like that. So this is the case where the Supreme Court, in principle, said everyone has the way to a lawyer, but has allowed uh, this, this situation to endure. You know, the Supreme Court seems to be very, um, very determined to uphold certain rights, notably the, uh, you know, the way to bear arms and, uh, and construed a very peculiar way, the right to religious freedom, <laughs> but they do not seem very concerned with, with the rights of defendants in criminal trials. And so, uh, politicians often sort of take up this language of being tough on crime to win elections. This is sort of a nebulous concept uh, a lot of times. Uh, I, I was just wondering, what what role does this sort of language have on how sort of the public views the criminal legal system, and what sort of obstacles does this erect towards a fairer system as well? Well, unfortunately, it results in a view that you know everybody out there is guilty, and we ought to lock them up and throw away the key. Uh, and very often, it's much more nuanced. Uh, it's much more difficult than that. Uh, some people accused of crimes aren't guilty of anything. Uh, and so the system has to work. They have to receive a competent lawyer if they're going to uh, traverse the legal system and, and come out with a reliable result. Uh, they have to have a jury that fairly represents the community, uh, not a jury from which uh, people of color have been excluded. Uh, and we could go on uh, uh, down the list. Uh, but unfortunately, and one of the most disturbing things, which we devote pretty much a chapter to, is this tough on crime in judicial elections. Uh, the people who really want to control the judiciary are the people with all the money, uh, chamber of commerce, businesses, and so forth. But th that doesn't work very well in judicial elections. So they put a lot of money into it, but then attack uh, the judge saying the judge voted in one case maybe to reverse a death case. Uh, and they don't talk about the legal issue in the case. They just talk about the crime and how terrible the crime was uh, and say that, you know, this judge is uh, such a bleeding heart uh, that she uh, voted to overturn the death sentence. It's not a, a thoughtful way to analyze what's going on, but it often has resulted in people being voted off the state courts. We've seen that over and over again. We saw in California in the 90s, three justices uh, voted off the state Supreme Court. Uh, we've seen in other states people voted off appellate courts, but also voted off trial courts uh, because they were, quote, soft on crime. Uh, unfortunately, what that leaves you with is a lot of judges who have to make a decision. Uh, do I want to sign my own political death warrant uh, by ruling correctly in this case, or do I want to uh, maybe not do that because I need to get reelected? Uh, and unfortunately, we see uh, a lot of compromise. One other uh, sad aspect to this is in Houston, uh, we see people run for judge. Uh, the lawyers contribute a lot of money to their campaign. Once the person gets elected judge, then 
that judge appoints those lawyers to handle cases, uh, often capital cases, often cases the lawyers are not competent in handling, uh, and then rewards those lawyers of paying them very generously. Uh, it's a political patronage uh, system. It's not a system of providing people with capable lawyers to represent uh, poor people accused of crime. It's a uh, it's perpetuating an elected judiciary and providing money uh, for the judges. So uh, it's a corrupting influence uh, that we see in judicial elections. We see in other kind of elections as well. Uh, but it's uh, had a very uh, negative impact uh, on the criminal courts. And so is the answer that you all see to this just sort of getting money out of uh, sort of the criminal courts as well? Or is there something larger that sort of needs to be done to affect this? Well, I think I mean, getting money out of politics would certainly help a lot. Um, that's, uh, you know, all the evidence is that the trend is moving in the opposite direction, not the right direction. So there are some states that don't elect judges, like uh, like Massachusetts, where I live. Uh, the general model that's followed in those states is that you have a commission that is at least on its face bipartisan and composed of experts, so drawn from various uh, uh, attorneys' organizations, uh, perhaps some nominated by by legislators. And this commission will make recommendations about who should be appointed as a judge, and uh, then the governor makes the actual nominations based on that. And then uh, and then they serve for a term, of a long term, maybe 15 years, and they are renewed, assuming that they have uh, met, basically filled, fulfilled the professional obligations. So in a number of places that do this, uh, Saturday, Justice Saturday O'Connor uh, campaigned after she left the Supreme Court. This was a big issue. She campaigned for it. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think that... Uh, the people, the say, you know, the people who are able to buy judicial elections like the system just the way it is. So this is a this is a difficult change to push through on an issue that many people are not aware of. Um, you know, I just thought of a wonderful quotation we have in, in the book. Uh, I forget, I forget who made it, but that person said at some point, basically. Um, people realize that it's a lot cheaper to buy a Supreme Court justice, state Supreme Court justice, than to buy an entire legislature or to buy a governor. <laughs> and, and that's what they decided to invest in. And uh, so, uh, so that's the problem we have. I'll also add, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier, I think district attorneys are elected almost everywhere in this country. And as a result, you have in most places you have prosecutors who who want to on a platform of and see their job as keeping the public safe from violent criminals, uh, which means that the most powerful person in the, in the criminal courts is someone who is basically uh, politically committed to locking up as many people as, as possible. You know, we see the opposite in a few places. There's been a recent movement of so-called progressive prosecutors who try to make decisions such as not seeking the death penalty, um, not charging certain minor crimes, and so on. I think that's a promising uh, development, but at the same time, whether or not you receive justice as a person caught up in the system should, really should not depend on the prevailing ideology in the in the jurisdiction you live in. Um, but you know, a little justice is better than not. And so, this book does a really great job, I think, of uh, realistically looking at the obstacles 
uh, to sort of a fairer system. Um, but it doesn't sort of focus just all on the doom and gloom of the system as it currently exists. So you both sort of highlight uh, places uh, where things within the criminal legal system are moving in the right direction. Uh, could you tell us uh, some examples of where and how this is actually happening and how you sort of bring that into the book? Well, sure. Of course, each state, and one thing that I think many people miss is that the vast majority of criminal sentences are imposed in the states. They're not imposed in federal court. Overwhelmingly, they're imposed in state courts. Uh, and what we have seen, and of course, state Supreme Courts uh, can interpret their own state constitutions in ways that are different from the ways in which the United States Supreme Court interprets the federal constitution. Uh, just to give an example, the Washington, the state of Washington Supreme Court uh, looked at the same kind of evidence that we talked about earlier, the evidence of racial disparities in the inflection of the death penalty in Washington, and they concluded, or the justices concluded, uh, that the death penalty was unconstitutional under their state constitution. So they took a different approach uh, than the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, only recently, uh, that same court decided that uh, the problem of prosecutors striking jurors on the basis of race was so pronounced, and the Supreme Court's opinion that we talked about earlier was so inadequate to deal with it, uh, that they would adopt a different uh, approach. Uh, and that has had an effect on making it much more difficult for prosecutors to discriminate uh, on the basis of race. And just last year, that court decided uh, where a prosecutor is engaged in uh, misconduct based on race in uh, closing argument or jury selection or whatever, that if that happens, if a prosecutor makes an appeal to race, it's automatic reversal. There's no uh, determination of whether the error was harmless, whether it would have had an impact, uh, that any appeal to race is absolutely unacceptable. Now, that's one state, uh, but we've seen California uh, follow the example uh, of uh, Washington with regard to the jury selection. Uh, we've seen some other states, uh, Connecticut, declared the death penalty unconstitutional uh, in their states. At one time, we had 38 states that had the death penalty, now have only 27. Now, two of those don't have anybody on death row. Uh, so we, we've seen... Uh, both a decline in the number of death sentences, but also in the number of jurisdictions that have the death penalty. Uh, so we do see some trends, uh, but of course, uh, many of these issues are going to have to be decided state by state. There's going to be some good decisions in some places. New Jersey, just this week, uh, decided no longer would there be fees to apply for a public defender. It used to cost $150 to apply for a public defender. Ridiculous. But a lot of states have that. Uh, but again, uh, the issue's been raised, uh, the injustice of it's been pointed out, uh, and some change has been made. And we have to hope that those changes will be an example for other uh, places as well. Yeah, I think um, the one of the things that's changed in the past decade has been, I think, greater consciousness of the structural injustices in the criminal legal system. And this, unfortunately, this is partly due to, um, you know, the parallel realization of injustices in policing, right? So the killing of Michael Brown and many other people since then. Uh, one of the points we make in the book is that the the same kinds of racial disparities you see in policing, you also see in the courts later. It's all, it's part of the same system. But uh, 
I think like the the realization that the realizations about discriminatory policing have also made open people's eyes to uh, racial disparities in the number of people coming into the into the system, and also uh, issues such as cash bail. Right, so um, problem of cash bail: if you're poor, um, you can't you have to wait in jail until uh, your trial, which means you're much 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 more likely to plead, plead guilty. Um, which leads to severe economic consequences down the road in terms of ability to find a house, to find a job, to have employment uh, decades later. So I think the the climate of local community activism over the past 10 years has been favorable for local solutions in certain kinds of communities, um, uh, places like Houston, Philadelphia, uh, and so on. So, you know, that that is a trend that that hopefully will continue as well. You know, unfortunately, we have certain uh, countervailing trends in this country at the same time. So it's difficult to say whether the outlook is uh, positive on the whole. So in the introduction to this book, you both write that the problems of the criminal legal system are rooted in the problems of our society. It cannot be solved overnight. You continue in that same uh, paragraph by writing that uh, the first step is to demand a criminal legal system that lives up to its own ideals. What are these ideals, and how can those who make up the criminal legal system work to uphold them? Well, I think that well, Sorry. I would say you know there are, there are a few ideals that some of which we've mentioned already. Um, you know, the Supreme Court building uh, on the top of the facade says "Equal Justice Under Law," right? So perhaps the most fundamental is that all people should be treated equally and it should not depend on most notably what color you are or how much money you have. That's something we've talked about. Another another thing that we idealize in our uh, legal system is the adversary system. The idea that um, you know um, each side has an attorney and the attorneys fight it out by assembling evidence and making their case in front of a jury of the defendant's peers. Uh, we have a, an adversary system today that is uh, played out on a heavily tilted uh, playing field. And so I think, you know, the premise of the adversary system is that it is it is fair, right? So I think we that's an idea we need to uh, restore balance to um, the adversary system. And so those are the kinds of ideals that I think at some level the vast majority of people agree with um, and one thing we wanted to show in the book is that they are not being embodied in the actual courts that we see today. I would just add, the Supreme Court used to say back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, there can be no equal justice when the kind of justice a person gets depends upon the amount of money he or she has. Uh, the point James just made is obviously in the system today, nothing matters more uh, than the amount of money a person has. And so that's an ideal. I think most people agree with that, that there can be no equal justice if it depends upon the amount of money a person has. But everybody knows that if you have money, you get out on bail, uh, you get a good lawyer, uh, you get a defense, uh, all these things that you do not get in many places in this country uh, if you're poor and if you're worse to color. What sort of audience did you imagine for this work? Well, I think knowledge is critical uh, in order to move forward. And one of the things we hope the book does is tell a lot of people things that maybe they didn't know before uh, about uh, prosecutorial discretion, the power of prosecutors. I don't think many people know that. Uh, people probably vaguely aware of the fact that uh, poor people are not very well represented 
uh, by their lawyers. But a lot of people don't know that we still have the all-white jury, uh, even in communities with very substantial populations of people of color, uh, and the cases are being decided by juries that are not at all representative of, of their community. Uh, so part uh, of it is uh, getting the word out, as James said before, there's a more uh, movement towards reform, a lot of it aimed at uh, police reform because of the tragedies that we've seen uh, with George Floyd and others. Uh, but one thing that we hope this helps people understand is that that doesn't end when you go into the system. Uh, when you, the, the, the person is arrested and then taken to jail, then the next decision is going to be made by the prosecutor. Uh, whether to charge, what to charge, uh, whether to seek uh, more severe sentence like the death penalty or mandatory 20 years or whatever it may be. Uh, and then there are going to be decisions all the way through the system uh, that are going to be influenced by race, by poverty, by color, uh, all those kinds of things. And uh, so it's very important that these efforts at reform uh, be aimed not only at uh, law enforcement, but be aimed at uh, how the system treats people, how prosecutors treat people, how the legal system in general treats people, uh, whether or not we have a, a level playing field, as James just said, whether or not uh, the person accused of a crime uh, has a lawyer that has the resources, the time uh, necessary to actually provide a defense uh, to the charges that are made. I just want to emphasize one point that Steve made, which is that I think a lot of people just don't know quite how bad things are. I think probably most well-educated, liberal, caring people have a sense that, you know, if you're black or if you're poor, things are not going to be as good as if you're white and rich. But as Steve said, I don't think many people realize how many all-white juries there still are, even in places with substantial minority populations. I don't think people realize how many people are in in jail or prison simply because they are they are poor. Um that including, so first of all, people who can't make bail, and then secondly, uh, people who have been locked up for failure to to pay their fines and fees. I don't think, you know, we, we've heard a lot about mass incarceration. I don't think people realize there are, there are on the order of 200,000 people who are serving life sentences today. Um, you know, they're not, in, they're not in prison for a few years. Um, they're in prison for decades of their entire lives. So some of the injustices we talk about in the book, again, I, I think people's senses, it can't possibly be like that in the United States in the 20th century, and yet it is. So that's one thing we wanted to tell people. Well, Steve and James, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you again for being so generous with your time. Uh, so I'll ask sort of one final question to both of you. Uh, what are you working on now? Well, thank you very much again for having us and being so generous with your time and talking to us because we really appreciate it. Uh, we obviously wrote this book because we thought it was important that people know about these things, uh, and we appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about it and let people know what, what we've found and what we've put together in this. Uh, I'm now getting ready for the next uh, year at uh, law schools at Georgetown in the fall and Yale in the spring, uh, so a lot of my time is uh, getting ready for that right now and looking forward to re-engaging with my students in, in, in September. And to be honest, um, I'm... I'm just deciding what to do next. It might be writing another book. I'm not sure. Uh, in the meantime, I uh, I, uh, I do a little work as a freelance cellist. I play in the Worcester Symphony and the New England Repertory Orchestra, so that takes a little bit of my time. But uh, yeah, I'm um, looking forward to 
what I work on next. Wonderful, wonderful. And also, thank you very much for your time and for a really great conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. And I wish you both the best of luck in, in both of those endeavors. Um, so Dr. Uh, Stephen Bray, Dr. James Kwok, uh, again, thank you both for being on the show today. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's a wonderful book, and thank you both for writing it. Um, and take care. <laughs>